Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Lord Jesus, hear our prayers, uh, hear our hearts. There's a lot going on. Uh, for many of us, maybe all of us, uh, for the next few minutes together, would you protect us from the evil one? Uh, would you just protect us from random, small distractions, worries, fears, doubts, uh, questions about what we're going to eat for lunch or whatever it might be that would distract us from you and your word? Would you fill us full of your Holy Spirit to listen well, to think well, as we saw Paul exhorting Timothy last week? And would you help us have the wisdom that we need to understand your word, apply it to our lives, and live lives that would honor and please you and bring us uh, joy and fruitfulness. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, this class is on the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I meant to do this last week and I forgot. Um, But some people will say, I don't even really know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is. Okay, so especially during uh, the Reformation and when... Uh, Luther and Calvin and others were breaking away from the Catholic Church, it became very common to make confessions of faith. Here's what we believe. Here's what we believe the Bible teaches. And so uh, I'm actually going to refer to four different confessions today. A lot of conservative Reformed theologians would say there are four kind of great Reformed confessions, the Westminster Confession, um, the Heidelberg Confession, the Second Helvetic Confession, and the Old Scots Confession. So if you're just really a nerd and you want extra work, you could go get copies of those. You can find them for free online. They really are good even to read and see how they address different issues. But I'll be diving into some of them today. Uh, but the Westminster Confession specifically was written, and don't worry, this is not going to turn into a long history lesson, but if you remember a little bit about old English uh, politics, they had a king and they didn't have a king and they had parliament. And a lot of times the kings were more aligned with the Catholic Church and then parliament would come in. Maybe when the king would be overthrown and there was a prime minister or something that would be more aligned with uh, the Protestant Reformation. And so in the 1600s, uh, you had Scotland and England. And England called together an assembly of a lot of uh, divines with ministers okay, from Scotland and England to try to put together the Westminster, and it's called the Westminster because they met in Westminster Abbey, um, the church there, Westminster Confession of Faith, to say these are going to be like the official, the official confession of faith for the Church of England, right? Because back then everybody was very pro-church and state being more aligned. Uh, they worked on it for years. They finalized it. And then the Anglican Church, the English Church, I think it was mainly because they didn't like where the Confession of Faith landed on uh, what it has to say about the civil magistrate, decided not to officially use it. But the Scottish Presbyterian said, we do officially want to use it. Again, that's in the 1600s. So here we are today, 2023, and the PCA uses the Westminster Confession of Faith as their official standards. Okay, I mean, the Bible... Is, is number one, then the Westminster Confession of Faith with the longer and shorter catechism. And there are other Reformed Presbyterian denominations throughout the world that use it. That's why we're studying. Many people would say it's the best. Some people want to argue, uh, is, is it or the Heidelberg the best? Those kind of end up a lot of times being the two contenders. A lot of people like the Heidelberg better. 
It's shorter, it's a little bit more warm-hearted, devotional, but some say the Westminster Confession is more uh, kind of doctrinally thorough. Okay, so there's the history lesson. We're not going to do a lot in this class of getting into, well, this one divine said this and the other divine said that. What we're going to do, and you got a good taste of it last week, is we're going to try to look at what does the confession say, and then let's go to the Bible and say, where do they get that from in the Bible, right? Because if it's just this is what the confession says, but the Bible doesn't say it, well, then it's not that helpful. Now, some weeks will be like last week where we just take one chapter and section of the Westminster Confession of Faith and one passage and kind of go deep on it. Some weeks will be more like this where we're going to, in a sense, take a theme and may f- refer to multiple different scriptures and even multiple different places in uh, the confession that talk about this. So today, what are we talking about? And I said also, if you have a question as you're reading through the books and the confession on your own, you're like, man, I really would like to talk about this. Send me an email. One of you's already done that. And if I can, I'll get to it. But it's so long. There's so much. We're not going to be able to touch on everything. Okay? So let me just stop there. Any questions about the history? The dates, that kind of stuff. Don't ask too many questions because I'm not an expert on that. But if you had one or if somebody wanted to throw in a comment of some wisdom you had, you could do that as well. Why did the Church of England not adopt it? I think it was because they didn't like what it said about the civil magistrate, that they had some problems in the nuance of some of the things that it said there about the role of the civil magistrate. And what is the they, civil magistrate? Uh, the, the government, the, oh, the, okay. the, the prince or the king or the parliament or the prime minister. I, so had to do with that. Why did you call them the Westminster Divines? Back then, I think instead of saying ministerial, I think you would say divine. Okay. You know, he, he had his doctrine of divinity a lot of times. Gotcha. You, you, you look at old people and their seminary degrees, like from that time, you didn't necessarily get a doctorate of ministries. You might get a doctorate of, of divinity. So they were divine. Gotcha. So, okay. All right. More than you ever wanted to know. Okay. We're going to talk today about the order of salvation. Okay, the, the Latin phrase sometimes you use, the ordo salutis, you've heard of this. Okay, um, We're going to look at several parts of the confession today. But we're going to start with Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are actually, excuse me, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Now, I'm going to start out today and read several passages from Calvin, the Institutes. Uh, If you you read from Calvin and the Institutes at least once in your seminary class, you get a bonus. So I'm excited about that bonus. Uh, So I'm going to just read some passages here, what we're talking about, uh, the order of salvation. So just listen to what Calvin has to say. Because I know this can be challenging, right? I think most of us probably, if I remember right from last week, are in Presbyterian churches, or at least a lot of us are. And so we're like, I believe all this stuff. But even if you believe it all, it can be really challenging. Right? Okay. I mean, I, I, this is, I'll just share this little story. I was meeting with my 15 year old daughter recently, and she's reading a book, and it has something to say about David. And she said, Dad, why did David get so many chances? And I said, Well, what do you mean, baby? He got so many chances. And she said, Well, he did some really bad things. And that lady from Lot, you know, she looked back one time and she got killed. I was like, That's a good point. And then she says, 
before I could even answer, she says, I mean, I know it's all about predestination. And I was like, how do you know it's all about predestination? I guess you're doing your job, Ben, so good job. And uh, she said, I don't know. I just know that. And uh, I said, she said, but I don't like to think about it. But just stop right there. And listen, I've had godly elders in their 50s and 60s say very similar things. I know this is true, but I don't like to think about it. Right? And I said, why don't you like to think about it? She said, because it's really sad. Why is it really sad? She said, because we get all this. And I think what she meant was salvation. But also she and I were having a little date in Chipotle. So I think it was like Jesus plus Chipotle, right? We get all this. And some people never even get to hear about Christ. That is sad. So, listen to Calvin's introduction to this difficult but important topic for us. The best limit of sobriety for us will be not only to follow God's lead always in learning, but when He sets an end to teaching to stop trying to be wise. You hear what he's saying there? Here, here's the way I say it. Imagine, and, and imagine there was a cloud that came down and said there was a fog. I might be able to peer into the fog a little bit, right? Maybe this, if the fog came in this classroom, maybe I'd say Jacob is close enough to me that I can see him. And I'm pretty sure I can see Ben in the back corner and, and, and Macaulay, but way in the deep back corner, I can't tell who's back there. And I need to stop and say, I don't know. And studying theology oftentimes is like that. There, there is a fog, and what God has made clear, we need to plainly and clearly declare. And where there is more lack of clarity doesn't mean that we can't humbly ask questions and speculate and try to understand but when it's just sometimes there's not going to be a clear answer we have to humble ourselves and say i stop here there are mysteries in this life that we will never know okay um so uh more calvin god's grace does not find but makes fit those fit to be chosen and that's actually a quote from saint augustine Right? Because listen, when I was wrestling with this personally, and, I, and I'll share more of this later, I remember, I, and I thought I was the first one to come up with this. I thought I was a genius. Right? And I was like, no, no, no. What happens is there are already people that have some goodness, have some faith. They're going to believe. And so God sees down the corridor of time who those people are, and then He chooses them and elects them. Right? And it's like people have been trying that thing for hundreds of years. And it's like, no, no, no. God's grace doesn't find people. God's grace makes people fit. That's actually Augustine, but Calvin quotes Augustine a lot. I see the depth. I do not reach the bottom. I think this is Augustine again. Paul rested for he found wonder. He calls God's judgments unsearchable. And thou set us out to search them? Like with a question? You understand what he's saying? He's saying even the Apostle Paul with his colossal intellect and so spirit-filled that he's writing the pages of Scripture, even he got to a place where he said, you don't ask any more questions, right? In Romans 9, I mean, the one chapter that talks about predestination, election, and all these hard stuff the most, at some point Paul just says, who are you to ask any more questions, man? Even Paul got there. But I love the way Augustine says it is, what did Paul find there? He found wonder. He found awe. 
And so when we get to a place where we feel like our brain is about to short circuit because of this stuff, there ought to be not anger, not frustration, not I have a right to know, not a right to know anything. There ought to be awe and wonder that God lets us know as much as he lets us know. Just a couple more. Must that which is manifest be denied because that which is hidden cannot be comprehended? You understand? Know that's, that's so good. Some things in the Bible are very clear that God predestines people. That, listen, if you read the Bible, it's 100% clear God predestines people. Now, does it ask a bunch of questions? Yes. But what he's saying here, and again, I think he's quoting Augustine again. He's saying, should we say, I'm not going to teach the clear stuff because there's unclear stuff that I can't really explain? And the answer is no. I should teach the clear stuff and be humble enough to say, yeah, that does beg some questions, so to speak, that I can't answer. I think Tim Keller has a great quote that says, listen, does election, predestination, does it cause some problems for understanding all this? Absolutely. You can be a great Presbyterian and admit that. You don't have to say, no, everything's fine and clear. No, it, it causes some problematic questions. But to deny it causes even more problematic questions. Does that make sense? When, however, a truth is of such a nature that he who cannot receive it is made worse by our speaking of it, and he who can receive it is made worse by our remaining silent about it, what do we think is to be done? Must we not speak the truth that he who can receive it may receive it? Have you all ever heard this argument? Well, there's a lot of people you talk about predestination, it offends them, it turns them off, it confuses them, it just is so let's just don't talk about it. And again, the point that he's making here is, well, if you have a group over here that can hear biblical truth, and therefore they benefit from it when you teach them biblical truth, and if you don't teach them the biblical truth, they're not going to benefit from them. And you've got a group over here, they can't hear it, oftentimes because they're not Christians. And they're going to suffer in some sense if you teach them, what should you do? And what Calvin is saying is, you teach it. Do you remember there's a place, I think it's in Timothy, where Paul says, I suffer all things for the sake of the elect. Hopefully you don't have to make this decision very often, but if you do, it's like, I'm serving the ones that God has chosen. I'm serving the ones that God has opened their eyes. And, and, and you say, what about lost people? Yeah, I want to serve the ones that are still lost, although I know one day some of them are going to come to Christ. Why? Because God chose them. I know that's hard, but I think it's accurate. Last one. God's grace is tasteless to men until the Holy Spirit brings its savor. You do much evangelism and you'll definitely see this. Right? You can, you, can, you can give the best, greatest evangelistic presentation of your life. You can have Billy Graham with you sharing the gospel. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't do a supernatural work in that person's heart to enliven their spiritual taste buds, they're not going to get it. It might be cute. It might be interesting. It might even appear beautiful. But it's not going to be saving. So, okay. Um, theologians like to talk about the order of salvation, right? When I read that conf uh, part of the confession earlier, there were a lot of phrases in there. Election, redemption, justified, adopted, sanctified. And then we're talking about, well, what are the order that those things happen in? So that's what we're really talking about today. Again, 
You can be a mature, growing, really godly Christian and not believe in everything we're going to teach today. Please hear me say that. I heard Sinclair Ferguson say one time, you've got to make, you've got to distinguish between the washed heart and the confused head. That make sense? I was very pleasantly surprised to hear my daughter's thoughts on predestination the other night. I was honestly shocked. I went home and told my wife, did you know that she thinks this way? I mean, it's, it's glorious. I guarantee you there are lots of 15-year-olds around the world that are Christians. They're really regenerate. They're really saved. They're really growing, and they don't believe in this. And I guarantee you there's a lot of 60-year-olds and everybody in between, right? So we're teaching this not to be arrogant, not to look down on people. Okay, so don't, don't, listen, there are a lot of people, sometimes, unfortunately, you come across that they're reformed and angry about it. Uh, I think there's even more people that are reformed and they're arrogant about it, which is such a terrible contradiction, because if you really believe this, the only reason that I understand more truth than this other Christian is because God chose to have extra grace on me to help me understand it. So there's no way I can boast in it. You dummy, why don't you get it? Again, I'm going to tell a little bit of my story in just a second. But when I first started studying this until when I first kind of fully accepted it, it, it took two years. And I was not a passive studier. I was an aggressive, I'm going to talk to people, debate people, listen to stuff, read books, read sermons. I mean, I was all in for two years wrestling with this stuff before I got convinced. So if I'm explaining to somebody for the first time, I shouldn't expect them just to kowtow and be like, you're right, that's amazing. Can't believe I never saw that before. Be humble, be gentle. Okay. All that was by way of introduction. Okay. Um, so, now let's go to the Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Which this is, there's a lot of this in the Bible. Okay. But here's maybe the shortest, most succinct passage in the Bible that talks about this. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, we're gonna, there are going to be some things... Uh, that it's the same concept said with a different word that we might not specifically unpack today, such as the elect. Okay? But the elect is just another word for the ones that have been chosen, the ones that have been predestined. Okay? So you get similar words, different words, but talking about the same context. So, and one of the best ways to understand this okay, is that there are three acts that happen, like an instantaneous act, and then there's two processes that happen. Does that make sense? So here's the first act. It's the foreknowledge and the predestination in eternity past. Once again, look at verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Okay? That happened in eternity past, and it seems to have happened in an instant. Now, again, some of my personal story. I grew up in a very godly, devout, great home. Best I can tell, I came to Christ when I was seven or eight years old. Okay? Mom and dad that loved Jesus, loved the Bible, read it every morning. I have a pretty good memory. 
I have no recollection of ever even hearing the word predestined until I was a senior in high school. Now, I read the Bible, so I don't know how, I mean, I just, but it was like one of those things I never noticed. Does that make sense? And here was my first experience, talking to a guy in class and somebody said something about predestination. I just said, what's that? And the guy said, well, it says that God chose before the beginning of time the people that will be saved before they even existed. But that can't be true because if that was true, why would God command us to go tell everybody? And I was like, yeah, of course, that's stupid. End of discussion, right? And then I come to Sanford University and I get involved with this ministry called Campus Outreach at this Baptist college. And, uh, you know, I was, I was the kid freshman year that was doing every different ministry and Bible study on campus. And here's one thing I noticed. Every ministry on this campus talked about evangelism. But only one of the ministries actually did evangelism. And they were the ones that believed in predestination. That really threw me for a loop. I didn't like it. I understand it. But I want to learn how to share my faith. So I get involved in campus outreach. And I go on a beach project. And one of the older staff guys, I remember I had this conversation with him very specifically. He said to me, he said, Olin, do you believe that every non-Christian is dead in their sins? I said, yes, Ephesians 2. Every non-Christian is dead in their sins. So do you believe that means that non-Christians can't do anything that is really good before God? Yes, I believe you know, non-Christians can't do any truly good works before God. He said, well, do you believe that choosing to trust in Christ is a good work? And I said, yes, I believe that, and I see where you're going, and I still don't believe it, right? And I still kind of put it off. But that's where he, he, he stuck something in my brain like a little pebble in my shoe that I couldn't get rid of, and that started my two-year study. And I remember talking to just the student leader in my room. I said, hey, what do you think about predestination? And he just said, I think the Bible makes a pretty good case for it. Which at first I was like, well, that's kind of a sellout answer. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, it's actually a pretty good answer, right? Because the Word's in the Bible. So if you say, I believe the Bible is infallible and errant, you have to believe something about predestination. You don't have to believe what I believe or what the Westminster Confession, but you've got to believe something. And obviously we want to believe what's right and correct. So um, foreknowledge means... God loved us before the beginning of time. It doesn't mean He saw down the corridor in time. Think about how powerful the word know often is in the Bible. It's not just an intellectual knowledge, right? Adam knew Eve and she got pregnant. It's intimate knowledge. Um, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you doers of iniquity. That's Matthew 7. It's not that Jesus had no intellectual concept of them. It's that he didn't personally know them, love them, say them. That's what foreknowledge means. It's a choosing. It's intimacy. It's loving. It's setting his love on us. Okay? Now, here's Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 9, section 3. This is about free will. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation so as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Right? This, is, this is a side note that's important. When we say that a non-Christian can't do any good works, I think we all understand this, but it's so important. Non-Christians can do trillions of good works at the human level. Right? They can help old ladies across the street and all sorts of stuff. But they can't do anything morally good before God that would justify them or make God 
see something worthy in them to be loved in and of themselves. Okay. Um, so, J.I. Packer in Evangelism and Sovereignty of God, short little book. Uh, I love this. He says, listen, all Christians believe in God's sovereignty over salvation, whether they know they do, whether they admit it or not. And he said, here's the reason why. Because when somebody gets saved, whether it's us or somebody else, what's your first gut visceral response is thank God. Praise God. It's not like they were so smart, I knew they'd get it one day. And when you have somebody in your heart that you're really burdened for, you want to see them say, what's the main thing you do? Yes, you talk to them, but you pray your heart out. Right? And listen, when you're really praying for somebody, it's not, God, just be a perfect gentleman. Whatever you do, don't override their will. It's like, no, no, I don't. I want you to be a SWAT team commander, God, and kick the door of their heart in. I don't want you to wait on them because they're so arrogant and stupid and blind and stubborn. They'll never get saved if you leave it up to them. Invade their heart. Let it be a benevolent takeover. Uh, So, again, I'll remind you of the Keller quote. Rejecting election causes more problems than it solves. Here's the old Scots confession. This is chapter 8 on election. The same eternal God and Father, who by grace alone chose us in His Son, Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world was laid. The same idea. Before the world even existed, He chose us. Now, that's the first act, foreknowledge, predestination. Now we've got a process. Okay? This process is a very long process, oftentimes called general calling. General calling. Keep your finger in Romans. We're coming right back. But flip over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> this is really the most specific place that it gets referred to with this specific word. General calling. Matthew chapter 22. This is a famous parable. The wedding feast. Not going to read the whole thing. Skip down to verse 9. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, called there has the idea of general calling. The proclamation, you know, Spurgeon has this great quote where he says, Listen, the elect don't have a yellow stripe down their back. Wouldn't that be nice for all of us in ministry? You go to the food court and just look for the yellow stripe. Sorry, sir, can I pull down your collar here for a second and see if you got. I'd like to talk to you about Christ today. Oh, no yellow stripe. You know what? Eat, drink, and be merry, brother. Enjoy it while you can. Doesn't work that way. The general calling is supposed to go out to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Okay? Um, and what we do matters. We're supposed to persuade. We're supposed to think. We're supposed to reason. We're supposed to logic. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to illustrate and all that kind of stuff. But I bet all of us that have been involved in much ministry at all, we could tell stories of like the worst, most backwards, most stupid, like barely even in English presentations of the gospel to somebody and people get saved. You had that experience before? Maybe you're helping a younger person share their faith and you're like, 
I, they just totally botched that. They, they basically they just, I think they said the name Jesus once. They misquoted some verses. I think they threw something from the Quran in there. And the person's like, yeah, I think I would like to trust in Christ. And you're like, what? Because, guys, God is so good and gracious and sovereign. He overrides our weaknesses and our stupidity. Now, that, that doesn't need to be an excuse for laziness and like a days of, right? But it ought to be a comfort. Okay. Um, let, me, let me share a little something. Let me get real practical on evangelism. because, Guys, if, if we come out of this class and the result is we can all pass the PCA ordination exam and that's it, we're like, my head just got bigger, right? Knowledge puffs up if it just stays knowledge. I want this to translate into life change for us. And part of that is a more bold, freeing, empowered, loving evangelism. So Randy Pope has this great illustration about evangelism, about how you do it. It's, it's, it's been so freeing. and It's maybe been the most freeing thing in my life in evangelism, practically speaking. He says, whether you're on an airplane or a party, whatever, in a sense, you take a step towards the person conversationally towards spiritual things. Right? Like maybe you're like, hey, where'd you grow up? And where'd you go to high school? Where'd you go? Did you grow up going to church anywhere? And if they seem to kind of bristle and take a step back, maybe like if you're on a plane and when you mention church, they're like, I didn't ever go to church. And they put the book in front of their face. Just take that as a sign. God must not be working on that person's heart right now. And you're just free to just take a nap. You know, watch sports sit on your phone, whatever you want to do. But if, when you kind of take a bare little baby step towards something spiritual, did you grow up going to church anywhere? If they're like, well, you know, I did for a little while, but now I've gotten out of it, but my mom always really loved church sometimes, and they seem to warm up to it, then take another step and keep stepping relationally, conversationally towards the gospel and just see how far it'll go. Does that make sense? That, that's freeing for me because when I was younger and more immature, I felt like, oh no, if I get on a plane, like if I don't share the full gospel with this person and call them to repent and believe, I'm a coward. And a lot of times I came out feeling either like a coward or sometimes like a bully, right? Because the person was trying to ignore me and read their book. And I'm like, no, 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 you're going to hear about Jesus whether you like it or not. And it probably did more damage than good. Does that make sense? It's, it's so freeing to say, God, lead me to the people that you're already working on their heart. I want to join you in that work. So, um, be a part of the process, general calling. So, this is the third point, but the second act, right? Understand we have the act, foreknowledge, predestination. The process, general calling, may last a lifetime. And then we have the second act. This is our third point, conversion. Okay? Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Now, Conversion is not in there, but there's a lot of different things that happen instantaneously in conversion, and that's what we're going to talk about under that one word, conversion. So, look at verse 30 again. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those who He, also, he called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So, the first step, it all happens in an instant, but even in the instant, there's a logical order. The first step in conversion is this, effectual calling. There's a difference in the way that Paul uses the word called right here and the way that Matthew and Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 22 is different. 
Because Jesus was using it, the general call that goes out to everybody, Paul is using it in effectual calling. I mean, it works. Right? That when Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth, he came forth. He did not lay in the tomb as a dead man and think, well, I kind of like it in here. It's cold and dark and, uh, you know, I don't have to get up and take these grave clothes. He didn't think about it. There was something supernaturally powerful that when Jesus called him, it created physical life in his body. And when the Holy Spirit supernaturally, effectually calls somebody, it instantaneously creates faith in their heart. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. Okay? When God truly calls you, nobody says no. This is irresistible grace. You cannot effectively resist His will. Okay? Effectual calling is essentially the exact same thing as regeneration. Okay? And if you're really struggling with some of this, Hang on a second, I'm going to give you an illustration I think will help. But first, let me give you some more of the confession. All right, so here's the old Scots confession again, chapter 3 on original sin. The rebirth is wrought by the power of the Holy Ghost, creating in the hearts of God's chosen ones an assured faith in the promise of God revealed to us in His Word. And this is from chapter 8 on election, still the old Scots confession. Giving power to as many as believe to Him to be the sons of God. He gives us the power to believe. Here's the second Helvetic Confession, um, chapter 1. Inward illumination does not eliminate external preaching. You see what it's saying there? This, well, God's going to illuminate people internally. I don't have to preach. No, no. I do need to go preach. I do need to go have conversations because God uses the preaching and the conversation to bring about the inward illumination. At the same time, we recognize that God can illuminate whom and when He will, even without the external ministry, for that is in His power. Can God save somebody without a preacher if He wants to? Yes, right? I mean, John the Baptist was regenerate in his mother's womb. God can do whatever He wants. But the normal way that He works, the way that He has promised to work, is through the preaching, the teaching. And listen... Please remember this. When I say the preaching of His Word, unless I clarify, what I mean is anytime any person declares His Word. So that could be my 15-year-old daughter quoting a verse to one of her friends in gym class. That counts as preaching. The, the Reformed Church in some ways has, has over-exalted at times the gifted, called, ordained man standing in the pulpit. Is there something special and unique about that? Yes! But there's a very right sense in which God can and does. I mean, right? God spoke through Balaam's donkey in the Old Testament. And the prophet listened. So, so if, you, if you're trying to outline this, that would be three. Point three, conversion. Subpoint A, effectual calling. Because we're, we're detailing everything that happens in conversion. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me use the whiteboard here just for fun again so I feel like a real seminary professor for just a second. It's like there, there's this act in eternity past, okay? Foreknowledge, predestination. And then there's a process, general calling. And then there's this act, we're going to call the whole act, conversion. And then inside of that instant, there's a lot of things happening. And the first thing is effectual calling. Does that make sense? Okay, and we're going to keep going with that list right now. The second thing is faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. There's a lot of verses that I could read here. Um, 
I will just read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, because I think we're all familiar with that. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 is a really great one. Listen to the way Paul says it here. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do you hear how Paul says it there? He's saying, hey, a good minister ought to be correcting people that are wrong. I'm supposed to do my part. But if it's going to really work, God has to grant them the gift of repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. So, now, here's what happens. When God effectually calls somebody, or you, same thing, you could put in regeneration there. When God first regenerates somebody, the very first thing they do is they, they repent and believe. Right? When Jesus said to the dead man, come forth, the very first thing he did when life came in is, i got to get up. Okay? They're not robots. They are real, responsible, moral agents who just come alive, and so they do the most obvious thing. Here's the Heidelberg, answer 21, about true faith. True faith is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Spirit. Here's the old Scots Confession again, chapter 12, on faith in the Holy Ghost. Um, For by nature we are so dead, blind, and perverse that neither we, excuse me, that neither can we feel when we are pricked, see the light when it shines, nor assent to the will of God when it is revealed, unless the Spirit of the Lord Jesus quicken that which is dead, which means make alive. So also do we confess the Holy Ghost does sanctify and regenerate us without respect to any merit proceeding from us, be it before or after our regeneration. So some people try to say, well, yeah, God saves you because He knows how great you'll be after your salvation. Number one, it's not biblical. And then number two, have you looked at your own life lately? Does anybody really want to make that case? I mean, to me, that's maybe the most shocking thing about my own salvation, honestly is that God saved me knowing all the sin I would do after I got saved. That's scandalous. If I had been God, let's all praise God that I'm not God. I'd be like, I ain't saving that guy because he's going to be such a grace abuser. He ain't worthy. That's not in the confession. That's the Olin confession, okay? Um, let me pick, try to find out where I left off. So also do we confess that the Holy Ghost does sanctify and regenerate us without respect to any merit proceeding from us, be it before or after our regeneration, as we willingly disclaim any honor and glory for our own creation and redemption, so do we willingly also for our regeneration and sanctification, for by ourselves we are not capable of thinking one good thought. Don't you even feel that? I mean, one of the best reasons to wake up and read your Bible and pray early in the morning, first thing, and you don't have to do it, and I'm not being a legalist, but I'm being a pragmatist, is because like, hey God, just help me be holy for the next 24 hours. Just help me think godly thoughts for the next 16 hours till I go to sleep again. Lead me not into temptation today, because I don't think I'll respond very well if it comes. So... Conversion, it's effectual calling, then it's faith and repentance, and then it's justification, right? When a person, because they've been made alive, puts their faith in Christ, repents of their sins, they get justified, right? This is in this verse, right? 
He justifies us. Listen, John Stott says God made Jesus sinful with our sin on the cross, and so now He makes us righteous with the righteousness of Christ. It's a legal declaration before anything has truly changed as far as my morals and ethics in the day-to-day, not guilty. Okay. Instantaneously, this is all happening at the exact same time. Adoption. Then I get adopted into this family. Now, this is not mentioned specifically in this text, but it does talk about uh, being his sons. Okay. He doesn't leave us as justified orphans. He draws us into his eternal family. Read a little bit earlier in Romans chapter 8. It's maybe one of the radical, most radical verses in the Bible. I'll just read it. Verse 17, Romans eight seventeen. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. There's some sense in which I'm a co-heir, a joint heir with Christ to Father God. It's insanity if it wasn't written right there. Too good to be true, and yet it's true. Now, let me give this illustration because I think this is important. Okay, if you're struggling with this, imagine that there was that me and you were all of us are standing on the the bank of a mighty, raging, rushing river, and there's like this gigantic Niagara Falls right here, and we see a bunch of dead bodies that are floating down the river. And these are our friends and loved ones, people we care about. And they're about to go over Niagara Falls and they'll be lost forever. And we're standing on the banks and we're yelling at them, I'm going to throw you a rope. Grab the rope and I will pull you into safety. But they're all, all of them are already dead. So when I throw them the rope, what are they going to do? Nothing. They can't. They're dead. But imagine if the rope was like this electrical rope that had the same kind of voltage that those things in the hospital where they revive somebody. I don't even know what you call them, but you know what I'm talking about, right, from all the movies. And you can shock somebody back to life. So that when I threw the rope, when it hit somebody, it instantaneously shocked them to life. What would be their first response as a newly alive person? To grab hold of the rope and be saved, right? I think that's a great picture of how this all works together. We are dead in our sins. Listen, if, if for no other reason, why, all these zombie shows and zombie movies, here's the one good thing. People without Christ are the living dead. They look alive, but they're really dead, spiritually and morally. But then when God does an instantaneous supernatural miracle to make them alive, the very first thing instantaneous they do is they trust in Christ, they repent. That's conversion. That's three. Now we have another long, lifelong process, maybe, but I don't have enough room on the board, so it's going to be a short line, okay? If you're in your outline, this would be point four. It's sanctification. It's a lifelong process. Now, just like the Bible used the word calling in two different ways, we saw that, right? The general calling, the effectual calling. The Bible sometimes uses the word sanctification in two different ways. There are places in the Bible, we're not going to look at it now. You can write it down if you want to. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Where the Bible uses sanctification in a definitive way. Because what does sanctification really mean? Set apart, made holy. So there are a couple of times where Paul will use sanctification and it fits in here. Under conversion. And what that that but that is called definitive sanctification. Once and for all sanctification. Set apart, right? It just fits with justification, adoption, all that we just looked at. But nine times out of ten, when most theologians talk about sanctification, that's not the way they use it. They're talking about the work of God that's slow but sure 
to slowly, practically conform us to His image. Right? I'm legally, instantaneously made righteous. I am practically, slowly but surely, being conformed to His righteousness. Okay? You see this in Romans 8.29. It doesn't use the word sanctification, but it uses the concept. For those whom He foreknow, He also predestined. Why? And again, some of them are like, what are you predestined us to? Salvation, yes. Okay? But also, to be conformed to the image of His Son. He's making us like Christ. Just a couple of other passages really quick that you're going to be familiar with. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Okay, so their salvation has more of a holistic concept. And Paul is talking specifically about the middle part, the sanctification part. With fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Whole another thing we may talk about at a different point. Okay, all of this stuff you would say is monergistic conversion. It's an act of God. Now we participate in the faith and repentance, but everything else—the effectual calling, the adoption, the justification—just an act of God. But sanctification, the lifelong process of sanctification, is synergistic. God's working, and so am I. Um, there's an illustration in. Um, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And I think it happens at the interpreter's house where uh, there's a man and he's getting armor to fight the battle. But then he also gets this certificate that says, basically, you're saved, you're definitely going to heaven. Well, then what's all this armor for? Well, you've got to fight your way to heaven. Well, what happens if I don't fight? You won't get there. Well, then what's this certificate for? Well, you're definitely going to get there. Well, then why do I have to fight to get there? And again, this is my paraphrase. And basically, I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you to guarantee that you will fight to persevere until the end. That makes sense? We're not going to talk about this today. We may do it later. But this process, sanctification, we could also put with this process the perseverance of the saints. All true Christians persevere to the end. You don't lose your salvation. How do you know if you're a true Christian? Are you persevering? Right? If you are persevering, why are you persevering? Because you're a real Christian. Because God saved you, adopted you, justified you, put the Holy Spirit in you. Okay. It's often slow and painful, right? When my kids were little, we used to do the thing that probably a lot of families have done. On their birthday, you stand in the pantry door and we see how tall you've grown. And my little daughter, when she was younger, you know, we'd do it on her birthday. And the day after her birthday, she'd always come back down and say, Daddy, do it again. Inch me again. See how many inch? Hello, baby. And I was tempted to say, you haven't grown any in 24 hours. But that's not true. She'd grown some. You just couldn't see it. Same thing in sanctification. You probably rarely will notice growth in 24 hours. You look back over a year, hopefully you should be able to see growth. Doesn't always work that way because it's a roller coaster ride, but over the whole lifespan, it should be. So, the last point, point five if you're outlining, okay, the third act is glorification. We see this in chapter 8 at the very end. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. If some of y'all, if I kind of pricked you with all that perseverance, you're like, where are you getting that from? Well, I'm getting it from right there. If you get justified, you're going to get glorified. Nobody gets called and justified that doesn't make it all the way. There is no such thing as losing your genuine salvation. The question is not, did you have your salvation lose it? 
A legitimate question is, did you ever really have your salvation? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were never really of us. Reverend Barker, faith that fizzles before the finish was false from the first. Right? Judas may have looked real for a while, but he wasn't real. And the way that you know he wasn't real is that he eventually abandoned the faith and never repented. So, Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, fairly famous. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. There's glorification. We're going to live in heaven with Jesus and be made like Jesus perfectly. Right? It's like this line of sanctification lifelong is a roller coaster ride. Two steps forward, one step back, and it kind of looks like that. But whenever you die or when Jesus comes back, instantly you take a big step forward and you're 100% glorified all the way. Now, a um, couple thoughts as we wrap up. If you're still struggling with some of this. Many of us are uh, familiar with the TULIP acronym, right? I won't go through the whole thing. I'll just say this. If you're struggling with any of this, it all starts with the T. That's how it worked for me. Because why? Because it's, it's just clear as can be in the Bible. There's no confusion about this one, the dead and the sins. And there's really no lack of clarity in human history if you're paying attention. And if you are struggling to understand it, just have a kid or two. Right? I don't know anybody that has a kid and says, No, hey, buddy, sit down and I'm going to teach you something today called lying. I want to teach you how to lie, buddy. Here's the way it's going to work. After dinner, daddy's going to say no more cookies. And then daddy's going to go out of the you know, room and you go in the pantry and you eat some cookies. And when I come back and I say, buddy, did you eat some cookies? You say, no, sir, daddy. Right? No, no parent in the universe does that. And yet all kids come out knowing how to lie. We're dead in our sins. We're evil. We hate God. There's a quote somewhere, I think, where St. Augustine says, if the infant had enough strength, it would reach up and strangle its mother and demand to be fed on call. We are utterly selfish apart from the intervening grace of Christ. Okay. So, um, Tim Keller again. No one is a hopeless cause. You realize this? If this stuff is true, and it is, nobody, you think about right now, don't say any names out loud, but whoever on planet Earth you think is the most wicked, evil person in the universe, whether it's a famous politician or somebody in your immediate family, right? Even they can be saved. I.e. the Apostle Paul. So, now, in this most important and powerful paragraph maybe ever in the whole world. I mean, God is speaking directly about foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, glorification. There's a lot of things He doesn't mention. Some of the stuff we mentioned today. General calling, faith, repentance, sanctification. Why doesn't He mention all those important parts? Because what He's doing in this is He only mentions the parts that are 100% God's responsibility and we don't have any part in it. This whole paragraph is saying, 
here is what God is going to do for well, here's what God has done for you, what He is doing to you, Christians, and what He's going to do for you. It is a very God-centered passage. The whole thing is monergistic. They're all done by God. The chapter, Romans chapter 8, starts with no condemnation in Christ. And it ends with no separation from Christ. And this is kind of the pinnacle, so to speak, in the middle. So, if you are truly trusting in Christ today, however imperfectly, yet sincere and genuine faith, what does that mean? He chose you. He predestines you. And what does that mean? To save you, to sanctify you, to glorify you. And then He came to earth. When they made this plan in eternity past, they knew what it would cost. Because they knew their own justice. So the Lord Jesus knew, if this thing is actually going to work and be effectual, I will have to go to earth. I will have to live a sinless life as a substitute. I will have to die. I will have to take the full weight of the wrath of my Father for the sins of all the elect. All these people that we're choosing to foreknow and love and predestine, I'm going to take that wrath. And the fact that he rose from the dead and the Father said, payment accepted, it worked. Is that when he effectually calls, it works and we're drawn towards us. Now, last thought we're done. Look at verse 30 again, Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, past tense, he also called, past tense. And those whom he called, past tense, he also justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, past tense, which makes sense. Paul's writing this letter to a bunch of Christians, all that stuff's past tense. But then you notice this, he also glorified, it's past tense too. That didn't happen yet for the people that are alive and reading this. It's what some theologians would call the prophetic perfect. It's as good as done. Right? Philippians 1.6 I'm confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you in Christ will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 6 all that the Father gives to me will come and I lose not one. It's the perfect handoff. They never fumble. Praise God, our salvation is out of our hands and it's in His hands. Let's pray. God, help us rejoice. Help us delight. Help us boast in You. Glory, exult. Sing in awe and wonder. And out of the overflow of all of that joy, let there be a radically serious pursuit of holiness to honor You and a loving pursuit of the lost to help draw more to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.